Hey, history enthusiasts, you get not one, but two events in history today. Heads up that you also might hear two different hosts, me and Tracy V. Wilson. With that said, on with the show. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello, I'm Holly Fry, and I am sitting in this week for Tracy V. Wilson. It's December 28th, and today we are talking about an event that happened in 1895, which is the first paid public screening of Lumiere Brothers films. Auguste and Louis Lumiere were brothers, born two years apart in 1862 and 1864, and they were prolific inventors. Their legacy is most closely tied to early film history, although they worked in a number of mediums. The Lumières, who lived in Lyon, France, worked in the family photography business. And in the early 1880s, at the age of just 17, Louis invented a photographic plate. It's called a blue label plate or a dry plate. And that plate reduced the need for darkroom development of images. That plate also drove a massive expansion of the family business. It made the Lumières quite wealthy, and it made the name Lumière synonymous with photography. Their father, Antoine, who was still running the family business, wisely set aside a portion of the company's profit to fund ongoing research and experimentation. So later, when Antoine saw one of Thomas Edison's kinetoscope machines in Paris in the mid-1890s, he immediately talked to his sons about developing a process to make the film that was used in the kinetoscope. Because Antoine thought that they could once again make a huge profit for the family business if they became the suppliers of film in France. But to figure out how to make that film with the holes punched in the side that was run through a kinetoscope, the Lumiere brothers also had to figure out how to make a camera. And that proved something of a difficult task. But eventually, it was thinking about a sewing machine that gave Louis the inspiration he needed to solve their main problem, and that was getting the film to advance. So by mimicking the machinations of a sewing machine, he was able to alter a camera. And with that problem solved, the brothers next turned to figuring out how to print film from negatives, and then how to show those prints to people. And they opted to go counter to the kinetoscope, which was viewable only by one person at a time. Louis wanted an audience, and so he developed the idea of film projection. Now, all of those functions that Louis Lumiere invented and his brother also worked on, the film advancement, processing of film, and projection, were all integrated into one machine that they called a cinematograph, for which the brothers first filed a patent on February 13, 1895. A little over a month later, on March 19th of 1895, the Lumières began making short films with their invention. And by short, I mean really short. (laughs) They tended to run about 50 seconds each, so not even a minute. The first film they made, La Sortie des Usines Lumières, that was workers leaving the Lumière factory, was simply a capture of their employees leaving their work at the end of the workday. And the Lumiere films generally were not narrative in nature. Just as that first film, they almost always were just moments out of real life, captured on film, documentary style. At the end of the year, on December 28, 1895, at the Salon Indien du Grand Café in Paris, Auguste and Louis screened their films for a paying audience for the first time. They ran 10 films, so it sounds a little like a film festival, but it was still very short because each of those films ran about 50 seconds. 
This is the first known instance of films being shown to a paying audience. There were 34 people in the crowd, and each of them had paid one franc. The Lumiere's most famous film, though, was not made until after this presentation. One of their films, which gained a lot of attention early on, was The Arrival of a Train at Ciotas Station. This particular film features, as the title suggests, a train pulling into a station. And from the perspective of the viewer, that train is coming down the tracks right toward them. The initial audience reaction to this film is one of those items in history that's a matter of some debate. Some accounts claim that the audience was terrified by the experience, and they screamed and even fled. But other accounts indicate that there was really a more subdued reaction. The panicked reaction version, of course, has gained some traction over the years just by virtue of being a juicier story. The Lumieres briefly started a business making and distributing films, but they eventually moved on from moving pictures to other endeavors, including developing an early system for color photography, while men like Georges Méliès took film and ran with it. If you'd like to learn more about the Lumiere Brothers, good news, Stuff You Missed in History Class has a two-parter on them, which originally aired in November of 2017. I want to thank Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their work on the audio for this podcast. And if you would like to, and you should, you can subscribe to This Day in History Class on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and anywhere you get podcasts. Tomorrow's topic turns from entertainment, unfortunately, to a more serious and tragic event that actually took place five years before the Lumiere's first paid film presentation. Hi, everyone. I'm Eves. Welcome to This Day in History class, a show that will convince you that history can be fascinating even when you expect it not to be. The day was December 28, 1903. American jazz musician Earl Hines was born. Hines was born in Duquesne, Pennsylvania, a suburb of Pittsburgh. His family was steeped in music. His mother played the organ and piano. His father played the cornet with the Eureka Brass Band. His sister Nancy played the organ. His brother played piano. His aunt sang light opera, and his uncle played brass instruments. Hines began taking piano lessons early on, and he worked toward the goal of becoming a concert pianist. When he was in high school, he moved to Pittsburgh, where he lived with his aunt. There, he fell in love with jazz. In his own music, he turned away from classical music and toward jazz. As a teenager, he formed a trio with a violinist and a drummer. The group played at high school events, church socials, and nightclubs. Since Heinz still had to go to school, his schedule was taxing. So he left school at age 16 to pursue his career in jazz. In 1922, Heinz began working at the Leader House, a nightclub, with singer and band leader Lois B. Deppi. The band went to Ohio, West Virginia, and New York City. And while he played with Deppi's band, Heinz developed his own style. He created a technique of playing a melody in octaves that was known as the trumpet style. In 1923, he went to Richmond, Indiana, where he had his first recording sessions with Deppy. But the next year, Hines left Deppy and led his own band, which included saxophonist Benny Carter. But soon, he moved to Chicago, which had a big jazz scene. In the city, he met people like Louis Armstrong, Jelly Roll Morton, and Benny Goodman. 
Hines, Armstrong, and drummer Zudi Singleton began playing regularly at the Sunset Cafe. When the club temporarily closed in 1927, the band broke up and Hines began playing at the Apex Club with clarinetist Jimmy Noon. The next year, Hines was on several recordings. That included some with Louis Armstrong's Hot Five and Hot Seven. Hines' piano style was notable on these recordings, and he began to be viewed as not just a talented musician, but as a jazz innovator. Hines also recorded a series of piano solos in 1928. That December, Hines began leading a big band at the Grand Terrace Ballroom. They worked every day of the week, and they spent months touring every year. The band also got a lot of airtime on the radio, helping popularize them outside of Chicago. When Hines lectured one radio announcer on drinking, the announcer gave him the nickname Father, and it stuck, even though Hines didn't like the moniker. Hines stayed at the Grand Terrace for 11 years and recorded a lot with the band. He left with the band in 1940, feeling exploited and underpaid. Over the next few decades, he was involved in various ventures. He played with the Louis Armstrong All-Stars. He played at the club Hangover in San Francisco for five years. And he opened a club in Oakland in 1963. But that didn't last long. He played three solo concerts at the Little Theater in New York in 1964. And he toured the world, including dates in the Soviet Union, on a tour for the U.S. State Department. Hines played the piano until just before his death, even though he had been dealing with arthritis and heart problems. He played his last gig in San Francisco, just before he died in Oakland in April of 1983. Many people consider Hines the father of modern jazz piano playing. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can find us on social media at TDIHC Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Email still works. Send us a note at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.